Do you ever feel bogged down by imposter syndrome or have ever wanted to write reports about volcanoes? The University of Houston's Deminus podcast series presents the first interview with Katie Bennis, a volcanology data researcher with the National Museum of Natural History. I'm your host. My name is Nicole Gwynn, and I'm a PhD student in the Geosensing Systems Engineering and Sciences program. So, uh, hi everyone. My name is Katie Bennis, and I am a volcanology data researcher with the National Museum of Natural History out in Washington, D.C., and I work in a specific department called the Global Volcanism Program. So my primary job is to research and collect information from various volcano observatories and read about some recent volcanic activity that is happening. And so with that information, I write detailed reports about this activity, which we then publish to our website at volcano.si.edu. And everyone can read this. This is open for the public. So people can keep up with the current events in terms of what's going on volcanically. That sounds awesome. So you work at the GVP, which is short for Global Volcanism Program. Could you elaborate on a specific project you're working on now? Yeah, of course. So one of the most recent projects that a colleague and I developed is called Mistranslation Tuesdays. It's more of a science communication slash outreach project that we started, where each Tuesday on our Facebook and Twitter pages, We post these really hilarious mistranslated snippets from volcano reports that we've had to translate into English from their original language. So there are volcanoes located all around the world. This includes regions like Japan, Indonesia, South America. And so we're getting all of these reports in different languages, which we have to put through a translating system. And so not all the time can you translate these technologically uh, detailed reports into common English. And so this kind of produces really hilarious results that we like to show off to our followers. So even though it's geared to be entertaining to the people that just want to pop in and see what's going on around the world, we also hope that it will start to bring some awareness to the difficulties that science communicators face especially in terms of how easy it is to miscommunicate a specific event or what's going on just because the language is presenting a bit of a barrier. I've seen your mistranslation Tuesday, is that what you call it? Yeah. I've seen those on Twitter. I think it's hilarious. It's something we're really proud of, and then every now and then we'll post some pro tips for people who are interested either in science communication broadly or who are trying to just follow the volcanic activity that's going on because then they realize, oh, there's more nuances to being able to report this volcanic activity that's going on, especially if I only know one language, but you have to be able to have that accessible to multiple different languages. So on the topic of misinformation, What advice would you give to go about correcting some thoughts that people have? Uh, I've heard there's a lot of fear-mongering on the social media websites. Is there any process that you would go through to correct that misinformation? One of our jobs as scientists is to make sure that we're giving out accurate information that is 
publicly available to everyone, but that's also very accessible to everyone, meaning that we're trying to limit the amount of jargon that we use in our reports. And we're also trying to make it so that even if you don't have a scientific background, you're still able to understand what volcanoes are doing at a specific time. So typically how we deal with some of the misinformation, a lot of it comes through social media platforms. As great as social media is to disseminate information and get out news very quickly, it's also really easy to get information either wrong or incorrectly interpreted. And so we're pretty active both on Facebook and Twitter. So when we do see people sharing articles of fear mongering or talking about super eruptions that isn't necessarily accurate, we try to point that out to the people that are spreading that information and say, hey, this isn't really from a reliable source. You can check out our website, which has all of the current and up-to-date information that you might need on it. And then every now and then, if we get emails from people, we'll try to respond to those emails about different links from reliable sources that we have found so that at least they know that they're getting information from credible people and not continuing to spread fear-mongering or dramatic articles because the fear-mongering and the drama is kind of to hype up certain news agencies so they get more clicks. So basically clickbait, we try to just present the information as clearly and accurately as possible so people can continue to spread the correct information rather than the more fearful information that people can easily receive. Do people ever argue back on any of the social media websites or continue to spread misinformation? There are some people that are very uh, persistent with the information that they have been given. So we don't always respond to people who aren't open to listening to what information that we have. We try not to create any drama. We try not to create any sort of arguments or anything like that. We just want to present the factual information. So if there are some people that don't really want to listen to what we have to say, then we won't continue to respond to them. We're just trying to give people an equal opportunity for what information we have that we have. I feel like that's a very interesting aspect about your job, and it's not really a tool or a skill set we learn in school. Shifting gears do you like most about your work? One of my favorite aspects of the job is knowing what's going on, what is erupting, and what a volcano is doing at a certain time. And so that's part of my job is just to know kind of everything that's erupting, knowing what they're doing, and then being able to go through all of these archival reports and digging out some really cool photos that might have been taken during the volcanic eruption, or maybe finding some firsthand reports, or seeing Twitter posts of people who are experiencing it, and then taking a video for us to be able to put as an archive into our database and publish that. So it's kind of like a huge puzzle of just trying to gather all of this information, translate it if I need to translate it, interpret it scientifically speaking, so that we can understand what really is going on at that volcano, and then being able to take all this information and synthesize it down into a succinct bulletin report so that people don't have to read pages and pages of details. They'll just be able to get the main gist of this is exactly what's happening. And I think it's really cool. It's kind of like you get to play detective. (laughs) What kind of experience did you have before acquiring this job? Was volcano something you learned in school, or what about the writing aspect, too? 
for the writing aspect, it's something that I've always loved to do. It's something that I don't think is insanely popular among scientists. There's a lot of friends or colleagues or mentors that I've had who haven't always been fans of just writing out papers or proposals or anything like that. But I always really love to write. And so I started taking creative writing classes and literature classes all the way back in high school, which I continued through my undergraduate degree just because I thought it was a good skill to have. And I think having strong writing skills is a really important, valuable skill just for any job in general. And I didn't really get into volcanology until I started my master's program. I I think I started in my senior year of high school actually contemplating looking at studying volcanoes, but I didn't really know that it was a potential career path for me. So I went through my bachelor's of science degree having basic knowledge of volcanoes that everyone gets in their introduction to geology course, but I didn't have anything more advanced than that. So when I went to my master's program at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, that's when I really started taking the volcanology course and learning more advanced science behind that subject. That really prepared me for my job that I currently have. I didn't take any formal training in terms of science communication or anything like that. This is all kind of coming with the job, with the job training, and then gaining some more experience as I continue to work in this field. So I I hadn't studied volcanoes until graduate school, but that really helped prepare me for the job that I have now. So with the job market being a little iffy out there for a lot of us who are graduating kind of soon, Do you have any advice for going after your dream job or the job that you really want that's applicable to what you studied in school? And something that I wish someone had told me when I started just looking at volcanology or even considering science as a field is that there are so many jobs that are interdisciplinary, meaning that there's a wide range of subjects and skills that you can have that can be applicable to a job that may come up in the future. And you don't necessarily have to have all of the skills required for a single job, but I found that having multiple skills and a wide array of subjects and disciplines is just as important. What I was saying earlier, where I had taken a lot of creative writing classes and English classes, and I really loved languages, and I minored in French in my undergraduate college, People didn't really see the connection between that and geology or even stretching that to volcanoes, right? You would think, oh, English and volcanology, they're completely separate beasts. But with this job, I found that all of the skills that I've learned since high school, I'm still using in my current job. I'm still able to write well. And then being able to speak another language is just an added advantage to the job that I have now because since volcanoes are located in every region of the earth, it's just advantageous to have more than one language because that opens up more opportunities. So even if you don't think that there is a specific skill that you have that won't be applicable to a job, I think it would still be important to to have because A, it's something that you likely enjoy or that you're interested in doing. And you're more likely to want to find a job that can utilize that skill to the best of its advantage because you have it. So it's a little bit cliche, but if you just like to learn and acquire different skills, I think you'll be able to find ways to make your skill marketable. And definitely jobs today are very hard to come by and it's definitely a very highly competitive market. 
but any skill that you have that can kind of either set you apart or show that you're really passionate about it, I think will only help with your job search. Well, I think all those are very excellent points and definitely some I strongly relate to. To finish this up, one aspect of the podcast I've always wanted to focus on is talking about any kinds of experiences in STEM as a a female. So my last question is, what kind of obstacles have you run into as a female in STEM and what did you do to get past them? I haven't been able to come up with specific obstacles because I've been really, really fortunate to have some supportive and absolutely encouraging mentors who were all women and they've all had their own obstacles and setbacks that they've had to face and so I think with this newer generation of younger more women presenting mentors entering this field or getting careers in this field I think it's easier for some of us early career people who may not be used to that sort of discrimination. And so, for example, my mentors, if they sensed that I was being treated unfairly or at conferences, if I was being asked unfair questions that weren't directly related to my research, they were just right there ready to defend me and make me feel more confident about my position and the fact that I was just there and had a place at that conference. And so I think it was really, really beneficial for me and empowering that I had these really confident mentors that were able to help me navigate through the STEM field. You know, as I was first getting into graduate school and after graduate school, I became an adjunct professor for a semester at the University of Mary Washington. I found that there were also people who judged me based on my age because I was relatively younger than most of my other colleagues or most of my other graduate student friends. And that seemed to directly correlate to the amount of experience that I had and maybe the amount of knowledge that I would have possessed at the point of them meeting me. But over time, even the students who I met who were at first skeptical for having this young female professor, they were able to see that I was capable in knowing what I knew and presenting them with information in a very clear and accessible manner, they responded very enthusiastically. So I came in with an open mind and tried not to let any of their skepticisms kind of get to me. I had some imposter syndrome, so feeling like, oh, maybe I don't belong among all of these really intelligent people or people who have done hours and hours of field work or gone to field camp or anything like that. Having a good attitude about it and then just trying to fit my way in and having people around me who were encouraging was really beneficial for my self-esteem and then my ability to do my work without fear of my being a woman as an obstacle. That's all really well said, Katie. Maybe in the future, I want to do a, an entire podcast on imposter syndrome because I feel like that's very prevalent in our younger generation. I'm glad to hear that you had some really good mentors in your early career as a researcher. Thank you so much, Katie, for talking with me, and I wish you luck in the GVP. I hope the listeners of this podcast will have learned what it's like to work as a volcanologist slash writer and uh, relate to Katie's experience in one way or another. 
that's it for the University of Houston's Engineering Podcast.